check one, two, one, two. All right. All right, if you can hear me, we're going to go ahead and get started. So if you want to make your way to your seats, we're going to all gather and get rolling. And if, if y'all not moving fast enough, I'm going to have to start singing. Never would have made it. Come on, somebody sing with me. Never could have made it. No, they didn't pay me for this, so I got to stop singing. There ain't no honorary check at the end of this, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to say that. I'm going to say that. Come on in. If you, got, if you can hear me, we're going to go ahead and get started. We'd love for you to come on and have a seat. My name is Pastor David Hill of Restoration Community Church. We pastor a small church plant in the Third Ward community, OST South Union. Uh, we are about rebuilding the lives of individuals, families, and community, and so it's my honor to be here. Chad is not here today because we just got back from Cuba a few days ago, and he just wasn't quite man enough to keep up with me, so he got sick. And uh, no, don't tell him I said that. I owe that man a lot, so let me not say that. No, he's, uh, he asked me to fill in for him because he was a little under the weather. So I just want to say a couple of things, and then uh, we'll get on with our itinerary for the day. Um, first, let me say, uh, if you don't know, HCPN is going to be doing what they call uh, 50 days of prayer. And uh, if you don't have it, there was a sheet like this out on the table. And uh, if, you, if you didn't get one, please get one. And they also have some little uh, temporary tattoos stickers that you can also get to help promote this day. But if you just look at the beginning, for 50 days from Easter to Pentecost, April the 16th to June 4th, we want to pray together as leaders, pastors, and church planters and followers of Jesus who are committed to the same mission field, and that's the greater Houston area. And the hope is that we can really build unity uh, around this idea of prayer and, uh, and a concentrated effort uh, unifying our hearts about what God is doing in the city. I just mentioned we got back from Cuba, and you cannot go there and see what God is doing without recognizing that it has been washed and bathed in prayer. Uh, and people are connected in a way uh, just across the whole uh, country that is so beautiful to see. Um, you know, I'm, I was sharing with some guys, I am coaching, trying to train my son and my kids in some sports, in basketball, and particularly with my son. And one of the things I'm always trying to push him and encourage him to do and I always use the analogy over, just crack your heart open and pour it out on the floor. Let me see what's beating in your chest. And when you go to Cuba, the minute you get there, man, their chest is open and you can see what's pounding inside. And you see this heart of prayer and this heart of passion and concern about what God is doing in their, in their country. And nobody's concerned about who sounds the most intellectual, who's got the best suit on. It's about, man, we've got a task to do and we need God Almighty to do it. And I believe HCPN wants to bring that spirit in this city and into the hearts of each and every one of us. And I think it's already here. We just want to keep promoting that. And so this 50 days of prayer is a way for us to do that. You can follow it and there'll be devotionals that'll be sent out through Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Um, you can follow that each day for 50 days, and we're going to see if we can unify our hearts in that and be a part of it. So if you need more information on it, you can see Micah, or you can text, uh, email Chad on that. Um, our topic today, our speaker today would be Pastor Jeff Wells of Woods Edge Community Church. And yes, give him a hand clap if you will. Uh, 
He is going to be speaking on um, God's heart for the immigrant. And so I'm excited uh, to hear from him. Uh, always a blessing to hear what he has to say. And uh, we know God's going to bless us with that. And also, ACPN is doing something different and new today. Um, we are going to start hearing from local church planners and what God is doing with them and kind of where they are. So we're going to start that with two gentlemen today. I'm going to bring them up in a little bit. And then after that, I'm going to turn it over to Pastor Ken Weirline, and he's going to direct us for the rest of the day uh, from there. But I'm going to ask that, uh, that uh, uh, Tony Toro. y'all heard how I roll that R? That's because I just got back from Cuba. And Matt Rule from uh, Church Project North County, you give them a hand clap. They're going to come up and share a little bit. Give, give David a hand clap for kind of getting my name right. Well, my name is uh, Tony Villatoro, and I am planting Sojourn Spring Branch on the uh, west side of Houston. Uh, Sojourn is the fourth, uh, our church is the fourth church in a family of churches known as Sojourn Houston. But first, before I give you all an update, I just want to thank uh, HCPN, Chad, Micah, and the board for everything that they do. Why don't we give them a hand of appreciation? After my residency in 2015, um, they released us to recruit a team, to uh, fundraise and all of that. And I remember being at a Starbucks. Um, I had just finished uh, opening up my prospectus with someone else and they said, I'll think about it. And whenever they say, I'll think about it, that doesn't really sound too enthusiastic. Uh, but I remember uh, meeting another guy by the name of Kyle uh, in that same Starbucks. He was trying to sell me insurance and I was trying to see if I can pitch him the church plant that we were gonna start. Um, I come to find out that he had just moved to Houston from Oklahoma. He went to Oral Roberts University and uh, he was there uh, selling and building his business. Um, and at the same time, I was there to uh, see if he would be willing to uh, hear about my church plant. Uh, come to find out uh, that him and his wife uh, were looking for a church, that he had gotten a degree in music. And even now, uh, last Sunday, he was still leading our music team and he's still there with our church. And that's just a glimpse of grace that God has allowed us to see uh, throughout this time, uh, the past year and a half. Um, this is our, our little update. We, we've launched in October of 2016, so we are six months in. Um, we're six months in going into our seventh month. Uh, we are excited. Uh, in the month of January, we got to baptize three um, uh, people at our church, um, which was a thrill. Our, our kind of, uh, yeah, praise God. The way that we want to do ministry is in a long-term, low-key, relational aspect, um, and we got to see a little fruit of that. But I still struggle at times with the idol of success, and I just want to be real. Um, in six months, I'm trying to measure what uh, we probably would do in two years, and I have to always go back to some pastors at Sojourn and other friends just to kind of, you know, pray me through and calm me down and say everything's going to be okay. Um, I am so thankful, though, for the Lord um, that, that he always provides reminders um, that I am not supposed to produce fruit, but I'm supposed to remain faithful and abide in him. Um, and, and in this season, that is, that is what I want to be called to every single day. Um, Mondays are sometimes really hard. Uh, um, we, we live and die sometimes by church attendance, as, as one of my pastor friends say. Um, and, and, and it is difficult at times, but we trust 
we trust that we are sowing the seed and we won't be able to tell the results in six months, but we will be able to uh, maybe not even know what kind of results we get. We must remain faithful. We must abide in Jesus. And I'm so thankful to be in this journey. I'm so thankful for HCPN and everything that they're doing for us. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Tony. Hey, my name is Matt Rule, and I have the privilege of leading Church Project North County. Uh, we are the 16th church plant from uh, Church Project in the Woodlands that started over seven years ago. And um, by God's grace, we've had the privilege of uh, partnering with Church Project Network as well as Houston Church Planning Network. Uh, I went through the residency a little over a year ago, and uh, we, we launched our church uh, in North Conroe, Willis, Lake Conroe area uh, a, a month ago. And so we're a one-month-old church, and which means two things. We've seen some really beautiful and amazing growth, but we've also had a lot of diapers to change, okay? Uh, because we're just a little one-month-old church. There's a lot of work to do, but by God's grace, for the last month, we've averaged about 250 people every Sunday. We have three house churches, and we're about to launch our fourth one. God is doing some incredible things. We're in a community that's thriving and flourishing, and, and we're just, we're, we're reaping the fruit and the harvest of prayers of a lot of people over a lot of time um, that have sown into this community. And so... Um, we're thankful, grateful for all of your prayers and partnership and ways that you've invested in us and thankful for uh, the start that we've had and we're excited for what uh, God's leading us into. And we'll see what happens over the course of this next year as God continues to work in us and through us to, to build a church that, uh, the, the church that he desires for us to be. So yeah, so that's what we're doing, a little update. And so thank you for your prayer and investment in us. And we're, we're really grateful and really thankful for it. So God bless. I'm gonna turn it over to Ken Werlein now, who's coming to move us along. Well, good afternoon. I'm Ken Werlein, and I have the privilege of, of being on the board of this great organization. And I tell people very openly, I think there's nothing in nearly 20 years of pastoring now that has brought my soul to life like being a part of HCPN these last three or four years. And just seeing the new things that are happening and seeing God working and answers to prayer and the way that culture's changing and churches are changing and God is working. And, and um, if you're brand new around here, let me just explain briefly what, what we're trying to do in a word is to saturate Houston, which often gets saturated with rain like today. And we're trying to saturate with churches all around so that every man, woman, boy, and girl has the chance to be a part of a gospel-oriented uh, church where their lives can be changed, their souls can be saved, where they'll grow as disciples and, and multiply. And so we want to be a city with churches that are multiplying into more churches, into more churches, into more churches. And so that's, in a nutshell, what we're trying to do. Several ways that we do that. Uh, are one through the monthly uh, gathering that we have just like this sort of come one come all for lunch which I was just reminded let me uh, say this so that I don't forget it April 19th you know next week month we got Easter and that week and everything so we'll go to April 19th so a little bit different rhythm than the normal rhythm um, and while I'm talking about it let me just mention briefly two ways that people are uh, learning some more things about HCPN and getting involved with HCPN. 
so you can put the word out or even just know it yourself. So we have two residencies that I'd like to call to your attention. One is the residency that we call, uh, well, I guess really we, we should say uh, sort of, we have a foundational residency for starters. Um, that's just at the sort of foundational level, getting some very basic tools going along. What I wanted to call to your attention was the functional residency and the finishing residency. Those latter two are the ones that we're collecting resumes uh, and applications for, for this next school year. The functional residency is an opportunity for people who maybe they feel like they've got a church in them three years from now, something like that, four years, something, but it's not like imminent next year, need a little time. So how about you apply and maybe we take a journey for a year with not just a lunch per month, but a day long opportunity and some personal mentoring just to see what's going on inside your soul and let's see if we can help you come along. That's the functional residency. And if you know somebody, or if you are somebody, say, you know, I, I might have a church in me three years, five years, somewhere down the way. Great. Then there's the finishing residency that is for somebody who says, you know, I think maybe God's put a church inside of me to get uh, launched maybe 12 months from now, maybe a year from now. Well, the finishing school is what you would want to apply for. That's an opportunity to, to actually uh, sort of come on board at where you receive a stipend uh, and pretty much a lot full time of sort of just HCPN pouring into you while you're getting ready for what God's gonna do in and through you to become a multiplying church planter in Greater Houston. So just wanted to mention those two um, uh, residencies so that you can know about that because maybe you are a person who should be applying right now. Maybe you know somebody who should be applying right now. You can tell them. Maybe you know somebody who should be applying right now and you can tell one of us and we can go after them because we certainly want to be recruiting uh, the, the you know, most gifted, impassioned, uh, committed uh, folks that we can uh, have be in those residencies. So that, that was the news that I wanted to uh, mention to you. I think that's uh, the first thing. The second thing is we're gonna pray. That's always something I love. And the third thing, I'm gonna introduce Jeff Wells. Why don't we pray first? And to try to keep us on schedule, we're gonna go kind of fast. So what, what if we did this? I'm gonna ask you to stand up and why don't you cluster with maybe two other people, no more than three. And why don't you share one thing you can pray for each other and then together pray for this city that we might be saturated. Ready, set, go. Lord, thank you so much for the good things that you're doing in our city. Thanks, God, for the opportunities that you give us to be a part of it and to watch you work, Lord. We just pray that you might continue to do immeasurably more than we would ever ask or imagine, that you would expand uh, our vision and our understanding of you and your greatness, God, as we see lives changed and souls saved, disciples made, churches multiplying. God, we just ask that you would do, um, even in this time now where we continue on, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through Jeff and that you would teach us all something, Lord. 
that we would have uh, teachable hearts and minds, and ready spirits to learn um, what it is that you want to teach us as people who are shepherding your people throughout this city. And we pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. All right, I'm sorry to kind of push us along, but I know that we're also trying to kind of watch the, the clock. So Jeff Wells was telling me that before I walked in uh, late from lunch that David had already introduced him. And so I'm just gonna say that Jeff Wells is a good friend of mine in uh, the Northwest part of the city. And I always love to hear him talk and I always learn when he does. So welcome Jeff Wells as he comes to teach us now. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, I'll say a little bit more about Ken because he's the past speaker. Ken and I actually have three things uh, significantly in common. One, we've known each other for a while as fellow pastors and had a, had a warm relationship as fellow pastors. And then secondly, uh, we, are, we both have struggled with obsessive compulsive disorder. So if you or if any of your people at all have any troubles, Ken will take private counseling time extensively, especially for your people. About five or six years ago, I hit a nadir in my struggles with obsessive compulsive disorder and Ken was one of the men that God used a lot for, for me and helping me with that. And then thirdly, about five years ago, my daughter marries his brother-in-law. So we're like family. And uh, so Ken and I have all these connections. About uh, last September, last August, a couple of folks on my staff team approached me and, and asked me if I would do a special message on immigration. And I, my basic response was, well, convince me. You know, I, I normally go through books of the Bible, like some of you do, and uh, there are all kinds of special issues that you could do. And so, so why should I, I, I do this one? Occasionally I'll do a special issue. And, and they convinced me. And so uh, this was about August, September. We scheduled it for um, early February, uh, before we kind of got to We had to move it around a little bit. And it turns out that that was just after Donald Trump's very controversial initial proposal, which got vetoed about the same time. So it kind of came out in the aftermath of that. But uh, when I began pressing in, I became uh, challenged with the importance of it. And let me, I probably with this crowd do not have to make much of a case, but why is the topic of immigration important for pastors, for believers, for the church in America. Well, first of all, let's just start with the fact that there are about 250 million immigrants in the world. We don't know for sure, but if you count a total picture of, of business folks, students, uh, refugees, about 250 million, which of course would be one of the biggest countries in the world, you know, what, five or six on a list. Uh, more a bit closer to home, there are so many in Houston. We all know this is the most ethnically diverse city in America. One out of four in Houston, greater Houston, foreign-born. We not only know that, we like that. We love that. Thirdly, there are a lot in our churches. So you can look behind you there and see all the church. I assume those are nations represented in this church. And, and I forget, uh, if is the pastor still in the room, and what's his name? You don't mind helping me out? Jonathan? I don't know if Jonathan's here, but uh, I love that they are targeting 
multi-ethnic multi ministry. Uh, our church in the Woodlands area, just in the spring, we, we, we have 47 countries represented that we know of. Now, we are overwhelmingly Anglo, so we are not a true multi-ethnic church, but we'd like to be. We want to be as diverse as we can, and we're getting more diverse. But we have 47 countries and maybe 500 immigrants. We don't know. Uh, so it's, it's such a big issue in our church and in a world, in the city, in a lot of our churches. But it's also a very controversial topic, issue in our culture. And our people, frankly, need pastors to help them think biblically. Because the American church is doing a pitiful job when it comes to thinking biblically about immigration. We are more uh, influenced by the Republican platform than the Bible when it comes to this issue. And you know what Martin Luther said about, you know, if a pastor, you know, boldly preached on every issue except the one that's germane in his culture, you know, that's pretty wimpy. That lacks courage. And so you, like me, I'm sure you deal with materialism, cult uh, materialism, uh, divorce, and other things in our culture. And this is a, is a big controversial topic that we're not doing a good job with. And then finally, it's just a big issue in the Bible, and it's bigger than I realized in the Bible. And I'm going to kind of give us a little sweep, sweep from that. So I realize that Christians can disagree on many policy aspects of this topic. I mean, nobody here wants to let terrorists in, and we can see aspects of this issue differently. But there are some clear biblical perspectives that must mark the Bible-believing Christ-honoring disciple of Jesus Christ. Let me clarify a couple of terms. Let's use the term immigrants. This is standard usages. Immigrants, let me distinguish just two terms, immigrants and refugees. The immigrants, all of those foreigners who are in a country, all the expats, born in one country, live in another country, that's the figure that there are about 42 million in the United States. Now, 42 million in the United States. And then uh, refugees are those immigrants who flee their country because of war, violence, famine, persecution, you know, some reason they need to flee their country. And there are about 3 million in the United States. Some of these figures we don't know for sure. There are about 60 million refugees in the world. If you'll, if you'll include, like, there are tons of refugees in Syria who uh, fled to other parts of Syria. So we're including that figure, about 60 million refugees out of the 250 or 300 million total immigrants in the world. Houston, you may know, is the leading receiving city for refugees in the United States. We receive more than anybody. If, the United States, if Houston was a country, we'd be the fourth biggest country in terms of receiving refugees. So tons of refugees come, are streaming into Houston. Our church has a full-time staff person working with refugees coming into Houston. We've been involved with refugee ministry uh, in mostly the southwest part of Houston uh, for a good while. Uh, we are in, we're currently in as a country, the biggest refugee crisis since World War II, worldwide crisis. And uh, at that time, uh, those of you who, who read history, read World War II stuff, uh, you know that the United States really did a poor job in certain aspects of the refugee crisis of World War II i.e., a lot of Jews uh, had to be sent back to Germany or could not get in the United States, and uh, it's just a, a tragedy. And um, 
You know, we want to think biblically as Christians and certainly as pastors. We don't want to repeat those kind of mistakes. So all of that to say, this is an important issue. This is a relevant issue. This is a big part of the, the, the world that we live in. So let me just summarize a few things. What does the Bible say about it? Well, there's five or six categories, I think, that you could talk about what the Bible says about immigration. First of all, you could just start with the fact there is so much example in the Bible, and it starts as early as Cain, who gets kicked out of his country by God. You know, he'd be the first immigrant, I guess, in a sense. But by Genesis 11, and I'm certainly not going to try to give everybody, but God scatters everybody. That's a, certainly a, with the Tower of Babel and immigration. Uh, forced immigration. There was Joseph, who in Genesis 30, wherever that is, 37, gets uh, trafficked, which some of the immigration today is done with human trafficking. Uh, he gets trafficked. Uh, later, his dad, Jacob, and his family become immigrants in Egypt because of famine. So, it's, you know, they're, they're really fleeing famine. And, of course, that begins the nation of Israel for 400 years. And then he goes all through Exodus and the Pentateuch, you know, trying to make their way to the new nation. So just think about how much, how big immigration is to the first five books of the Bible. But it, it is so big in the Old Testament. I mean, uh, Ruth, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Daniel, uh, so many uh, uh, of the Israelites, you know, exiled in, a, in, a, in other countries, uh, Assyria and Babylonia. Uh, many of the prophets' ministry was either from another country, I mean, they were immigrants, or it was to the immigrant Israel people. And so, so much of the Old Testament involved immigration. New Testament, I don't think it's quite as, as common, but there are a couple of passages that are particularly significant. But certainly, in the New Testament, after Jesus died, you know, he tells them, you know, you go, make disciples of all nations, and the, the disciples, the inner circle, the 12, basically did that. You know, Paul was always in and out of other countries as an immigrant. Barnabas, Priscilla, Aquila, so many others. It's just, I mean, you look at the Bible, it is uh, filled with immigrants and at times with refugees. The most noteworthy example, of course, would be who? Jesus. You know, when he's a baby, uh, he, Joseph takes Mary and Jesus and flee persecution. They become not just immigrants in Egypt, but refugees. So uh, anybody here who is an immigrant, and I'd assume that some folks are, that uh, you, you're in very good company with the Lord Jesus Christ. More significantly, perhaps, not, that he, not only that he spent a part of his life as an immigrant, but the way he cared for foreigners. Let me just mention the way he spoke and interacted and affirmed foreigners. Let me just, you know, the Roman centurion in Matthew 8, the Samaritan woman in John 4, many others, just to, the way he treated them with love and respect. Now, the Old Testament passage would be another whole, whole uh, category. And the Hebrew word, ger, occurs 92 times in the Old Testament, commonly translated sojourner, depending upon your translation, your version, uh, sometimes foreigner. Tim Keller argues that a, a good translation is immigrant, the term we most commonly use, 92 times, it's all through the Old Testament. And, and I, it, it's really a, a difficult decision, well, how much of that do I bring up in a talk like this? Because there is something to getting the biblical feel of repetition 
and emphasis. So if we just scroll through a dozen or so of those, which I'm not going to do, you just get the, the impression how God really feels strongly about this. But I'm not going to do that. I, I have chosen carefully three examples. Uh, the first one is just right after the law, you know, right after they're you know, gotten out of the land. This is Exodus 22. God says, you shall not wrong a sojourner, an immigrant, a foreigner. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child, orphan. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And you can, it can begin, begin to sense, just being reminded of a passage like that, of the heart of God, uh, not just for the sojourner. Uh, all of us who are pastors are familiar with the, with the triad of widow, orphan, and immigrant. Widow, orphan, and sojourner that occurs all through the Old Testament. 32 times, I believe it is, somewhere around there. 32 times, those are the three groups that God singles out repeatedly because in that culture, they were some of the most vulnerable people. And God's compassion and mercy says that has got to characterize my people also. So time after time after time, God takes note. I will surely hear their people, hear their cries if they're mistreated. Exodus, my second of three, Exodus 23, 9. Just the next chapter, you shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And here are the people of Israel, who for 400 years were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You know, this is first generation uh, at this point in Exodus 23. He said, you must know better. I mean, you were foreigners in a strange land. You know, that's not quite so apropos for us directly, but keep in mind that this was part of the Mosaic law that uh, was in effect for all the subsequent generations, you know, down through the rest of the Old Testament, that this was a challenge to them. You know better because this is where your ancestors were. And that, of course, is exactly where you and I are. If we're not first-generation immigrants, like a few of us are, we're probably third, fourth, or fifth, or sixth, or, you know, some generations. I mean, Nobody in this room, I bet, today uh, you know, can go back extremely far. I mean, not even native Indians, and then you go back further. We are all immigrants in America, particularly. Especially America, because we're late on the scene. So, you know better, and so should we. And then my third passage, that I think is the strongest of these three, Leviticus 19 when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall, do, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Which is kind of like an emphasis at the end. I am the Lord your God. And that strong, strong passage, and many of you, you recognize Leviticus 19 as being the source chapter of the second commandment. Leviticus 19, 18, later in that same chapter, he reiterates the command to love your neighbor as yourself, specifically in the context of the immigrant, the foreigner, the sojourner. And, he, and he's so emphatic there. Treat the immigrant 
the way you treat the native-born Israeli. Treat them the same. Love them as yourself. I am the Lord your God. So time after time, that's only three of 92 occurrences. Three of 32 times the widow, orphan, sojourner triad is used. This is the heart of God. Okay, uh, what about the New Testament? The New Testament does not have quite that kind of language, but the teaching of Jesus is so clear about all the vulnerable and the hurting and the marginalized and the needy. Uh, you think of love your neighbors yourself when he's quoting Leviticus 19:18, which certainly includes the immigrant. Love your neighbors yourself. In fact, uh, the most notable uh, example or picture of that is the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which I think is particularly relevant to this issue, but it's relevant to every issue, of course, of loving your neighbor, but because it's dealing with a foreigner and a, and a native-born, except reverse the roles, and it is the foreigner who is showing and modeling the love to the native-born. I mean, he's the hero in this story. But notice also, or just think with me about it, uh, what, what the two biggest concerns are of the American Christian now, I'm just going to skip by the basic American. We go to the American Christian. Those folks in American churches who have problems with immigration, who would line up with a Donald Trump sort of a mindset, I'd say there are two basic fears. One, the fear of terrorism, which we get. Nobody wants terrorism here. And secondly is the fear of economic struggle because, man, they're taking the good jobs. There is a real debate about do the 42 million immigrants help the U.S. economy or hurt it? Most economists say it helps. But throw those aside. That's not a biblical issue. But there are some very real fears by the American Christians that they imbibe from the world, and I would say at that point they're worldly. Fear of safety and fear about money. Now think about the, the Good Samaritan. It's, it's implicit, not explicit, but, you know, the cultural background of that road from Jerusalem to Jericho, many of us have been near that and can kind of imagine that, that it was a common ploy for a band of robbers to have one of their guys kind of sprawled out on a ditch, acting like he had been robbed, and when someone helps him, the others jump him. So there was a kind of a safety risk to this Samaritan, and he didn't give way to fear, but he, gave, but, but, but he did the right thing. And then there's the financial uh, cost to him because, you know, he put, he put some money into this thing. He paid the hotel bill and any other expenses you need. So he did not give way to the two big, big fears that characterize so many American Christians when it comes to immigration. Uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. But, you know, the Matthew 25, 31 through 46 parable, the sheep and the goats, you know, that, that classic passage where, you know, Jesus says, to the extent that you did it to me, uh, the extent that you did it for them, you did it for me. To the extent you did not do it for me, uh, to, to them, you did not do it for me. And he lists out, you know, uh, the, the point particularly is that the most needy and vulnerable and hurting especially love them because when you love them, you're loving Jesus. And for his examples, the hungry the thirsty, the naked, the prisoners, um, the strangers, those people. And, you know, if I would think about our world 
and some of the most needy people. Uh, at the top of my list, I'd probably put the unborn. And, and then I would put way up there uh, the, the, the trafficked. I'd put the orphans next because there's so many and there's such great need. Orphans, but the trafficked and the refugee, and even to a large extent, many of the immigrants, I'd put near the top of the list. And one day, we might hear the words of Jesus. You know, how you treated the immigrants that were pouring into your city, that's how you treated me, including the Muslim immigrants. Um, of course, we could go on other aspects of biblical truth and teaching that are germane to this issue, that bear on this issue. You know, that is, this is one of the metaphors for us as believers. Aren't we all sojourners on this earth? Because this earth is not really home for any of us. You know, we are aliens. We are sojourners. We are pilgrims. So that is the metaphor that God chooses to use for all of us. And then many of you know that there is a classic passage that you thought, was he going to get to Acts 17? And here it is. Acts 17, which is just so strong when Paul is at Athens and he makes this comment when he says, of God, and he, this is Acts 17, 26, and he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. So a couple of, of, of clear, unequivocal teachings there. First of all, the, the, God is a sovereign God, and He chooses the times and the places where people are. And He is sovereign over the, the boundaries and how long of, in time the allotted periods and the movements happen so that, here is God's ultimate purpose in it, His ultimate goal for it, so that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. That is, that God is over, He's sovereign over the immigration that goes on in the world, and He wants to use the, all the migration of peoples to save people, to draw people, to reach people for Jesus Christ. And that's happening. And so if that's God's understanding and aim, should it not be ours? That we need to see this as a God-ordained opportunity for the gospel. And that is so obvious for us here in Houston, Texas. So obvious that here is a great gospel opportunity that so many generations did not have. And we have got to seize it. It must be, you know, something's wrong with us if we're not excited about it. The, the gospel opportunities. You know, Jesus did say, go into all the nations. And that is still true. And we've got a lot of folks out around the nations. But we all know that the nations are coming here. And so, you know, both and. We've got uh, great opportunity. And I would say that you probably have more openness to the folks coming here than when we go to there for those folks. Whether or not that's all of the college students, the refugees, business people. Uh, and God's intent, God's uh, heart is that, God, is that, 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 those, those, that migration be leveraged for the gospel. They'd come to know Christ. Let me give you two examples of that. 
uh, in my world, or kind of in my world, related to my world. There is a couple in our church that moved here from Holland, uh, the Netherlands, uh, Harold and Tisha. And Harold and Tisha are not refugees, and they're not poor. A businessman, a professional man, and uh, for job reasons, they moved to the United States. But when Tisha and Harold heard this message, Tisha came up and said, that happened to us. We came to Christ after we moved to the United States. God brought people in our lives, or he brought the gospel, you know, from largely secular Europe to a little bit less secular America. God used that, to, and we came to Christ, and they, and, and they are, are believers. Going all out, Tisha is going all out for Jesus. Uh, also, when I gave this message in our church, uh, there's a man in our church, Steve Smith, who a uh, friend of Joe Walsh here with East West, wrote the T for T book that many of us have read on church planting movements. And Steve has spent the last 20 years or so, 15, 20 years in Asia, China, particularly Dubai, Singapore. Now he lives in Houston. He's part of our church family. And he said, Jeff, let me tell you this story. He said, I right now am discipling a Pakistani man who lives in Germany. In fact, he's like an Apostle Paul to Muslims in Germany. And so let me tell you about him. He was a jihadist who immigrated, uh, you know, into Europe, you know, probably, I didn't ask the details, but probably from Turkey into Europe at uh, Lesbos, Greece, where so many immigrants are coming through. And he was so loved by Christians that he became open to the gospel, became a believer uh, couldn't go back to Pakistan. He'd be killed the, the, the moment he stepped on, off the plane. But this jihadist, God uses the immigration, and he's what Steve calls a, 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 an Apostle Paul to Muslims in Germany. God can use all of this migration and immigration, and he can use it in our lives too. You may have heard Rick Platt address this issue and particularly address this passage, but... David Platt, talking about this passage in Acts 17, he says, So when we see the migration of peoples for a multiplicity of reasons, we must recognize that every bit is occurring under the governance of God. In Acts 17, Paul says that God is doing it all for a reason, that people might seek Him and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. He said, We must remind ourselves, the Lord will make no mistake. Our God aims to be sought, found, known, and enjoyed by all the peoples of the world, and He oversees their travels to that end. In His goodness, our God turns even the tragedy of forced migration into the triumph of future salvation. He says, now, are there risks in proclaiming the gospel to refugees? Sure there are. But where have we gotten the idea that Christianity is devoid of risk? Security in this world should not be prioritized over proclamation of God's Word. As followers of Christ, self is no longer our God. Safety is no longer our ultimate concern. He concludes with this, at least the part I'm quoting. He says, much of our response to the refugee crisis seems to come from a foundation of fear, not faith. Much of it seems to flow from a view of the world that is far more American than biblical, far more concerned with the preservation of our country than the accomplishment of the Great Commission. That rings true in my world. And I think in many ways that phrase sort of summarizes what I would say is, the, is the, the, the perspective in the American church. We have given way to fear, not faith, when it comes to so much of the immigration matter. So we need to not only model it, but we need to call our people to it. 
that here is a gospel opportunity that is unprecedented. And if our basic response is a, is a, a, a cowering fear, or if our basic responsibility is a, is a mindless patriotism, I'm a patriot, I love my country, but never will I put the United States over the kingdom of God. Never. My real citizenship is in heaven, not in America. And if we put the importance of the American economy or even America first, that kind of a mindset, depending on what you mean by it, um, that is less than a biblical perspective. What if one day, many of y'all remember one of the immigrants in the scripture, the great-grandmother of King David, uh, Ruth, who was in Moab. And when the famine ended, she could return, and her husband was already dead, she could return to Israel. Now she becomes an immigrant and to Israel. And do you remember that little interchange with Naomi, her mother, who was an immigrant in Moab, and, and Naomi's trying to talk her into staying with your people. Stay with your people. And she basically said, no, no, I'm staying with you because your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. What if the immigrants in our city one day said that kind of thing? Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. There are a lot of folks, Muslim folks, Buddhist folks, Hindu folks, basic, secular, materialist folks who need to know the love of Jesus Christ. Let me just quickly summarize two things. First of all, let me summarize the biblical perspective as I see it. I'd say that first plank would be that God has a special heart for the immigrant, the foreigner, the refugee. He has that kind of heart. Secondly, if God cares about foreigners, so must we. We must love them, welcome them, reach out to them, show hospitality to them, have them in your home, get to know them, ask them to tell you their story. That last one is a great thing to do. Ask them to tell you their story. Uh, for me personally, my, my wife has an extreme gift, a uh, very high gift with hospitality. So we have twice a month normally groups of 24 under our house. And so we have these big groups mostly from our, our church. But a couple of years ago, we had, we've, we had in our favorite group ever, and they were about 30 foreigners who were visiting the United States, most of them Muslim, current Muslims, and most of them from the West Bank. And that was so fun to go around the room after a great meal and ask them, what are your dreams? What are your dreams? And to hear them talk about it, and just being free to, 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 to leave our neighborhood, you know, just to, to get across the wall, things like that. And if you have not been interacting with 25% uh, of greater Houston who are immigrants, you're missing out on a great joy. You are. They're, they're the funnest people around. You know, talk with them. And even the Muslims, I think most of us know by now, they are not to be feared. They are to be loved. And we love it when we have Iraqi Muslims, Yazidis, uh, other Muslims, you know, brought by folks at Wood's Edge into our church, and uh, they hear the gospel. Uh, so, reach out to them. Thirdly, God is the sovereign God. He moves people around the world so that they would come to know Him ultimately. Fourth, we have an unparalleled gospel opportunity because the nations are coming to us and many are open to the gospel. I mean, we must respond with faith, not fear. I mean, guys, this is just the most exciting thing uh, that we could have, you know, here in Houston.
for the, for, for the gospel for the nations that they're coming here so much. Finally, let me just sort of close with this. Um, if you choose to give a mes- message like this, of this sort, on immigration, your church, let me just tell you the kind of responses that, that I've had uh, just to give you a, a little heads up. Now, it depends on your demographics. Zach, uh, you know, I think that most of your folks are pretty young, aren't they? Overwhelmingly young congregation. Well, my, my read that uh, the folks in the greater Houston area who are young, uh, no problem. You know, they, they get this and they will love it. Uh, folks in your church who are not so young, uh, maybe not. Uh, in our church, when I spoke on this, and I started the church 23 years ago, so you know that founding church pastors have a lot of clout and credit, and, you know, we can leverage that. And so, um, but still, some people did not like it. And I would say a half a dozen families have left the church that I know of, that I could think of. Don't know for sure, but some folks might leave. Um, second category is there are some diehard Republicans who realize, by the way, I am completely pro-life and biblical marriage, and so I'm Republican. Just throw that out there. But there are some diehard Republicans, but the Republicans are not my God. The Bible alone sets my, sets my way. Some diehard Republicans realize that they had been more influenced by the Republican platform than the Bible, and they thanked me for challenging them. Oh, yes, you're right. Thirdly, the great majority of people in our church liked it, and many of them loved it and appreciated being challenged biblically. You know, don't you, that you know, the believers who, who want to walk with God, they want to be challenged in their spiritual life, and they appreciate it. Let me tell you, though, what, the, what was a surprise to me. The hundreds of immigrants in our church, including some who had been around a long time, including some who are from safe countries, you know, in Mexico, you know, who are not terrorist threats from Latin America. Uh, when I looked at them and said, I don't care what experience you have had in America or in the church because of immigration, but I want you to know from me that we, the church of Jesus Christ, welcome you to our country. We are glad to have you, and we need you. And we learn from you just as you learn from us. Uh, They felt, so many of them, moved to tears. And they, they felt so accepted to have their pastor say, we want you. We want you. And it surprised me, that kind of response. Um, depends on your congregation and the age limit and the, I mean, Woodlands is Republican Central, so uh, that's a lot of Trump stuff out there. And, uh, but it'll depend on your situation. But I'll say this, I'm not saying that everybody here has to do a message on it, but, but we need to understand and reflect a biblical perspective. For me, my part, I have prayed for long before immigration became an issue in our culture. I have prayed for diversity because it inherently pleases God. Because the only basis for diversity in the church is the cross of Jesus Christ. And that that could be the thing bringing very, very different people together that inherently glorifies the power of Jesus Christ.
and His grace. And as He reconciles people to the Father, He is inherently reconciling people to Himself. Very diverse people. And diversity in itself glorifies the Lord. And it is intoxicating. It is so fun. So, have at it. Let me pray. Lord God, please guide us to think Christianly, to think biblically about every issue of our land, including, Lord God, this issue. Lord God, thank you for my brothers and sisters here who, Lord God, have led the way for years uh, far ahead of me in loving the immigrant and the refugee and the foreigner for Christ's sake. Give us grace. Give me grace. I pray. Amen. Hey, good afternoon, and thank you for being here, hanging in here. I apologize for being a little late myself, but I couldn't paddle any faster in my canoe from northwest Houston to get here, and it was crazy on the Beltway. At one point, just sitting still, as a poor person, had, uh, obviously, you know what happens in the rain. So uh, thank you for being patient, and you don't need to leave now because it's a mess out there. So hang in here for about another 20 or 30 minutes. We're going to have an, a panel discussion in response to... Uh, Jeff's good word to us today, and I've got some helpers to come help me do it. So let me ask our panel to come. Hopefully they've all made it by now. Icky, are you here? Brian and Daka, where are you guys? Come on up. We've got three stools, three microphones, and three experts that are going to follow up with us on this topic. And we want to get to uh, some of the more ministry and missional issues regarding to reaching the immigrants, especially from the perspective of, am I good? Still got me? especially from the perspective of church planting, oh, church planting and uh, reaching people for Christ. So hello, fellas. Thanks for being willing to do this. Check, see if your mics are on. Say hello. Testing. Perfect. Hello. Good. Good afternoon. Excellent. Oh, well, I want these guys to introduce themselves, and we want to be mindful and respectful of your time, so we're going to do our best uh, to be uh, less preachy and more right to it and get through as many questions as we can. Here's what we'd hope to do is at the end of our 20 or 5 or so minutes here, we'll throw it open for another couple of two or three questions from you guys if we uh, scratch uh, something that you want to ask about a little bit later. I'm David Fleming, if I didn't tell you, and the pastor of Champion Force Baptist Church, which 10 years ago I would have said is an all-white, middle-class, Republican congregation. Uh, but I'm happy to say to you today, God's done an amazing work as our communities transitioned, our church is now reflecting our community to reach our community for Christ. We're about 50% white, probably 35 to 38% Hispanic, and about 12 to 15% African American. And uh, we, we have a, a Vietnamese Bible study that's about to turn into a worship service, so that group is growing. So I'm very thankful and excited to have lived what Jeff has been sharing with us over these last uh, 10 years at Champion Force Baptist Church, and, and that's just a God thing. Uh, let me get you guys to introduce yourselves and give us the 30-second snapshot of your whole life. Can you do that? Icky, get us started. Uh, sure. My name is Icky Soma, and I pastor Cedar Refuge Church, and I was born in Tokyo, Japan, and I moved to Los Angeles when I was six months old, so I too am an immigrant, and came to faith actually in California, so I'm actually an immigrant from California, Texas as well. So it is a foreign country, you know. <laughs> Still a foreign country. It is. It is. And I pastor Cedar Refuge Church, which uh, I believe is probably the most diverse church, maybe in Texas, maybe greater Houston, I don't know what limits, but very, very diverse church politically, ethnically, culturally, socioeconomically, generationally. Beautiful. Thank you. 
Um, my name is Daka Dusyakov, and I, I'm originally from Kazakhstan. Um, I came uh, as an international student in 2017, University of Houston. Um, I grew up in a, as a Muslim in a Muslim family, um, became a believer in 2002 after a year of searching God and asking questions. And when I came to the U.S., you know, just definitely God opened the doors with other Muslim, you know, from Saudi Arabia, you know, Pakistan and Iran and others, and felt like it was a great, you know, opportunity and calling. So I do uh, international student ministry at University of Houston's Bridges International. Beautiful. Thank you. Uh, my name is Brian Abair. I am uh, wear a number of hats. One, I'm the mission pastor here at Wilcrest Baptist. I also teach at Fuller Theological Seminary. I'm in the Intercultural Studies Department. Um, I've been involved in Muslim ministry both here in Houston uh, and in the Middle East for about the past uh, 10 years or so. Beautiful. Thank you for hosting us today. Great job. We appreciate it. Well, so we have uh, three very different perspectives, different backgrounds, different cultures represented here. If we can, let's tag on what Jeff was saying there toward the end of his talk. Uh, and, and, you know, we can debate or, or give long explanations on any of these issues, but if you'll allow me to, to, to moderate, keep us moving. Um, but what would you say uh, philosophically, and some would say theologically, does our attitude and, and perhaps therefore our responsibility to the immigrant depend on the legal status of the immigrant? Is that a fair question, Jeff? Yeah. Which one of you guys would just tackle that in, in brief? You have to do it briefly. I don't know what you're thinking, Nikki, but you can do it. I would just say, are they sinners? And if they are, they have a need, and that's Jesus Christ. Yes. Brian, you want to throw something on that? Uh, does it or should it? Yeah. I mean... Does it? It probably does more than many of us are aware affect mm -hmm. how people view uh, immigrants or people they may partner with or even share the gospel with. Mm -hmm. But uh, I mean, if someone's here, regard and, and their legal status is your first concern, you're really asking the wrong question. Mm -hmm. Daka, what do you think? Well, I, you know, I mean, most of my people are legally here, hopefully, uh, and uh, <laughs> I think. But I, yeah, I mean, a lot of times I think there is that. Um, uh, I think a lot of times I, I you know, I. I deal with some other issues, you know, the fear of Muslims and everything, as opposed to more immigration things, I think. Um, so I don't know if, I don't directly work with refugees. In that sense. Yeah, so just to sort of apply that, uh, and don't, don't make this connection unreasonably, but our responsibility to all persons, whether they're here legally or illegally, whether they're incarcerated or outcarcerated, doesn't change how we view the person or our responsibility to that person. We all agree on that. But let me push a little bit further because uh, Jeff was rightly giving us some of what we'll hear, and we want to be equipped to answer uh, questions, not to argue, but just to be prepared to give an answer. So then, uh, if our attitude and our responsibility to the immigrant is regardless of their legal status, does that mean that we are not to have laws or to uh, obey those laws? How do you reconcile that? So let me uh, try to address that without getting into a debate of any sort. So when I first got to see the refuge, we had a building and facilities maintenance guy. And so I got there February 1st um, is my start date. But we had just issued out like all the tax forms for finding your taxes. And so our finance guy said, Icky, there's a problem. And I said, what's the problem? Our building facilities guy, he's been using his wife's social security number for all his tax documents. And so I called him in my office and I said, hey, I found out that this is what you know, you've been doing. So long story short, he was undocumented. He was not able to legally work in the United States. And so I met with his pastor. He was not a member or part of our church, but he would work Monday through Friday at City Refuge. 
And so his pastor, who I think has been to a couple of ACPN events, uh, said to me, explain all the laws of immigration and, and even the hypocrisy of the government. He says, you know, most of the INS people know where you know, these folks live, and yet because they build our homes and provide other services and aren't causing trouble, they stay in America. And so he said, as a pastor of a church, he said roughly that's half documented, half undocumented. What I encourage the undocumented people to do, just like Romans and First Peter, is be a good citizen, obey the laws and all that. But he says, I push them to say, find legal means to become a citizen. Pursue that. If you need to get an immigration lawyer, I can point you in the right direction. So he says to those who are undocumented in his congregation, you know, Romans 13, pursue the legal means to become a documented. Uh, uh. Yeah, so it sounds like you, you wouldn't uh, throw out Romans 13. Or, did I turn it on? Okay, guys. Did, did, you can't hear me? Maybe it's a matter of You can't. Uh, so, you, obviously, you keep saying we have to. We have an obligation to Christ to be law-abiding, thank you, to be, to be law-abiding and, and follow the law. And our society, in a sense, depends on that uh, to a large degree. Um, but it doesn't change our attitude or responsibility to the person who perhaps even has broken those laws. And by the way, coming here illegally uh, is a misdemeanor, not a felony, until it becomes a felony after a repeated situation. So I think that's an important distinction. I'll just hold it. Uh, so here would be the, the third question, and then let's get into the ministry and mission of it. How do we, as Christian leaders, who in t- sometimes, Icky, will have people on our staff that we discover are, are not documented or other issues, how do we navigate with our people the tension between justice and mercy? Because that really is the tension in this conversation. I think this question and the last one are, are somewhat tied together in that we need to be both pro-immigrant uh, and by immigrant, I mean the, the people itself, maybe not the process, but the people, uh, and pro-law at the same time. The laws are there. Uh, the people who are against immigration assume the laws are there to kind of just keep people out. Uh, but for people who are here illegally, the worst thing for them is that they're open to exploitation, uh, that because they're undocumented, because they don't have legal recourse, uh, they can be paid less, they can be exploited in a number of ways. And so that's from just a a justice standpoint, the church should be pro-law. At the same time, we need to, to love uh, the immigrants around us, whether they're legal or illegal. And, and I think both of these come through being pro-Jesus. Yeah. So, uh, you know, to wander off into theology that I'm woefully unprepared to do, we really are talking about the immutable aspects of God, his attributes. He is love and he is just. He is both not at the expense of the other. He is perfectly and wonderfully both. So our goal in this is to strive to love justice and also to love mercy and to do uh, justice. So those two just have, that's the tension I think guys. And I think we'll, we'll have to navigate that tension in the, as the Lord leads us, but we can't let go of either or we'll quickly be out of balance. You know, we'll be lawbreakers, which is sin, or we'll be so, um, uh, loving and, and, and did I say that right? We'll be lawbreakers or we'll be rigid and, and tyrannical and unloving, which is sin. So there's sin at either pole. It's the tension between the love and the mercy of God and the justice of God that keeps us in, in hopefully in balance. And in, in my experience, holding that tension has helped us navigate an awful lot of pole discussions. And a lot of the rhetoric that we hear today that most definitely impacts our ability to reach our community and especially the immigrant community, the rhetoric comes from the pole, 
not from a position of balance and tension between those two attributes that, that we are pursuing in Christ. Let's talk about uh, getting down to the mission and ministry of it. What are some of the issues you face that we didn't just discuss when it comes to reaching the immigrant in your community? What are some challenges? Well, I think uh, for us, um, I think the biggest thing is the cultural issue that includes religion. Uh, obviously, you know, we work with a lot of Muslims, a lot of Hindus. Um, so a lot of times they view Christianity as this Western religion and, you know, it comes with a lot of baggage too. Um, I think another thing is the, um, because we will deal with a lot of communal society people, uh, you know, if we, you know, for example, I work with a lot of Iranians, and if you invite an, an Iranian to a Bible study, if he sees another Iranian, he is like, oh, I, I don't think I can come. You know, he's he nervous. might be interested in spiritually. Mm -hmm. um, as a matter of fact, he is interested, but he's, he doesn't want to participate because he sees other things, other Iranians, and then they can report him to the government. So right. there's a lot of issues. So, you know, it's, you know, sometimes you have to meet them one-on-one -on -one and, and, you know, build the trust. Them. Yeah. Uh, do you see, um, Daka, the need to practice indigenous missions? You talked about the cultural differences and that being a barrier. Do you see the need to practice indigenous missions in our own neighborhoods? Meaning that, that just as if we went to Iran as a missionary, we'd have to understand the culture, learn the people, the language, build a relationship. Shouldn't we be doing that if there are people from that culture in our neighborhood? Well, I, I, think, um, I think there's a different level of contextualization but then, you know, they also realize they're coming to a foreign country. So I don't think you have to be, become an Iranian for them because they know that you're an American, you're, you know, certain. I think, but there's, you know, levels of hospitality, levels of loving them and serving them. I think those are the huge issues where, you know, yeah. like, um, you know, there are basic needs for them, obviously. Um, yeah. But, and again, I, and there's, there's also some cultural issues, but you have to realize that you cannot become an Iranian if you're not an Iranian. Yeah. So. But the other extreme would be, hey, you, you came to America, and this is who we are, and this is how we do it, and if you want to be with us, this is how you got to do it. So that'd be the other extreme in error. Well, and, and some, a lot of them want to be like Americans, you know. They want to, want to learn how to play baseball. They want to dress up like Americans. And uh, some of them, you know, don't want to. I think so. It, it's, I think it's part of building a bridge to introduce them to American culture. So one of the things we do in Bridges, we do both American holidays and their holidays, too. Mm, and they just, they love it. Beautiful. Uh, my experience with immigrants is that, that they want to have their cake and eat it, too. Don't we all? Uh, they want to retain some sense of cultural identity because they are a people and they don't come to America to, to forsake who they are, but at the same time, uh, they want to assimilate to a degree and be American. There's that tension, I think, even in the immigrant to, I don't want to forsake who I've always been, but I do want to grow, stretch, and if the church can sort of meet them in that halfway zone to where we're saying, you don't have to become white, middle-class American guy like me to be here, um, but it'd help us if we could meet somewhere in between. I can't be Iranian, uh, but, and you don't have to be from Florida. Yeah. So I'm from Florida. Okay, cool. Let's go to another question. And what, what do you see as uh, uh, opportunities uh, to, to reach the immigrant community here in, in the greater area of Houston? What, do you, what kind of opportunities are out there and possibilities? What do you see? Nicky, you want to start? Uh, so DACA and uh, Pete Aldrich are members of City Refuge. So... Pete works as International Christian Fellowship, uh, Ministry of InterVarsity. So, obviously, the campuses, UH, Rice, uh, schools like that. Uh, and then also, because of oil and gas being so big, oil and gas isn't just a Texas thing, it's a global thing. And so, because of that, we've got people from around the world who are coming to Houston to 
for, for economic reasons. So mm -hmm. I would say the business world is another area that we can really uh, have an arm of, of missions. Good. Uh, let me throw onto that. Is the, the issue of, of multiculturalism and immigration a, cent, a central issue in the city, an urban-only issue? Because I think you guys are all sort of inside the, the beltway at least, right, your, your ministries. I'm in the suburbs, and I can tell you right now, uh, our mission field is very diverse. Uh, you know, and I, I've said to our people, not trying to be cute, but, uh, but maybe it's cute. You can look out your door, look around your street and say, well, there goes the neighborhood. Or you can say, what I think Jeff said, here come the nations. And that the difference in those two questions changes everything about how I view what's happening in my suburban Houston neighborhood. There goes the neighborhood or here come the nations. We've just challenged our people not to move out. Don't leave. Many of you have had a yearning for missions and for the nations in your heart. You've given, you've gone on mission trips, you've supported missionaries internationally your whole life. Now you have the chance to be one and you don't even have to put your house on the market to do it. And really challenge our people to, to stay where you are and embrace the possibility that the nations have come next door. You want to say something, Brian? Yeah, I think because of the refugee crisis right now, our assumption is that Immigrants are poor, and all immigrants are refugees, and that's just one piece of the pie. You know, you have immigrants, you've got students, you've got Bridges International working with them, uh, but the majority of Houston's international population, they're here for the same reasons we are, to make lots of money and have a great life. Um, and I've, you know, in mobilizing people to reach Houston's, you know, quarter million Muslim uh, population over the past uh, several years, a lot of people will come from other towns where they only have uh, refugee population. And so they'll say, hey, we want to work with this group or that group, and we're going to start a clothes closet and a food pantry. And I'll say, look, these are all great ideas, but that particular people group here uh, in Houston, they drive nicer cars than the two of us put together and better houses and make more sure. monies. Than, you know, you could try it. It's just not going to go anywhere. And so I think we need to realize that uh, as they come in, they're very educated, they're very affluent. Uh, they like to live in nice, really nice places. And so there's a lot of them, huge populations, Cinco Ranch, Kingwood. I mean, you get out yeah. to the, the, the really wealthy suburbs, there's a lot of internationals there. Uh, Fort Bend is extremely multicultural, you know, because typically you get in an inner city situation, monoculturalism, because people gather in those homogenous people groups, but you get in the suburbs, extreme multiculturalism in the outer loops and the outer areas of, of inner cities. Really amazing to see that. Well, I think another thing I just want to add, um, even if it was a lot, a lot of international students, a lot, I think a lot of them want to kind of that, pursue that American dream and, and live mm -hmm. here for five, six years. I think one of the things we've done is Bridges, uh, we partnered with First Press, is this idea of uh, professional mentorship is that, you know, the students will graduate and we won't see them. You know, mm -hmm. we'll have a new batch and of course we'll focus on them. But it, it's finding people in, a, in, a, in oil and gas, in the, in the medical area and say, you know, here's an international student. Can you like, connect yeah. on the mentorship level and, um, and to continue that relationship? I think, I think that's a huge thing that goes beyond even university. Yeah, and isn't that a point of connection for people cross-culturally because we have the same American dream, as it were, or we are at the same golf club or tennis club, or, and those are points of connection that transcend culture oftentimes because we have that common interest. Very good. So, guys, think about this for a second. We have a few minutes left, and then we'll take some questions from the, uh, from the group. Uh, what would you want us to know, based on your experience, about reaching the immigrant, multiculturalism, or missions and evangelism and church growth in a multicultural context like we have here? Who wants to go first? What would you say the big thing is? The challenges? 
No? Just what piece of advice would you have for us? What do you want us to know? I, I would say uh, probably one of the biggest stretching points for us, uh, if you consider yourself to be the dominant culture, and depending on what neighborhood, that, that might change, but uh, is we have to learn how to change and adapt. Mm -hmm. uh, and the problem is we're not changing and adapting one way. We're changing and adapting multiple ways, but things like time and touch and relationships in different cultures are very, very different. Uh, I know coming back from the Middle East, having just gone every week from spending 20 and 30 hours with certain of my friends every week, I mean, guys with jobs and families, to coming back here where I can't get, you know, American guys to have a coffee with me once a week. Mm. It's a huge shock. And so there's a huge opportunity there, but we also have to learn how to socially and culturally adapt out of our uh, Western cultural patterns. Mm. Good. Good work. Icky, what do you think? Uh, I would say from a, just a, congregational perspective. I think everyone here, every church planner, every pastor would say that their church is welcoming to everybody. I've never heard anybody say we don't like this group of people or this group. But I would say um, one of the largest unreached people groups in America are the formerly incarcerated. Mm. And so at our church, we have several leaders, quite a few people who are formerly incarcerated. Uh, same thing, mental illness as well. I mean, if you do ministry here in Houston, you know that there are mentally ill people. And again, do they feel welcome at your church? And again, I also would say, yes, they do. And I would say the same for immigrants and refugees is do they feel welcome uh, in your particular uh, body? And then with that, and I think the, the two things that we don't like just naturally is, is people, I think, are tension and risk. And so to, again, live with the tension of both justice and love. But then even the risk of, of those things, of when you have people in your congregation who are mentally ill, when you have people in your congregation, whatever, that come, there's going to be a risk attached to it. Uh, years ago, when I first got to the refuge, uh, many of you know, we had a huge church discipline case. A uh, staff member had been embezzling money. He wouldn't confess and repent totally. And so we had a church discipline issue, met with them. And um, one of our members, very active member, uh, is formerly incarcerated. And he said, now this is the risk. And I said, well, what is it? And he told the elders, now if you decide to discipline him because you won't repent, you know, and then you hand over your findings to the DA's office, and he is indeed indicted and he goes to jail, they said, no, he may want to pay you back. And he can go in jail, and as he's sitting in county jail, he may say to some guy, hey, you know, this church did me wrong. And he may say, all right, I get it in 10 days, you give me the name of the church and I'll show up and pay him back for you if you give me $10,000 to a family member. And so he told me that, and I'm like, really? And he's like, yeah, that happens all the time. And I'm like, oh, okay. But we as an elder board, we decided unanimously he wouldn't repent, that we'd hand over what we found, and we'd, we disciplined him. Well, two Sundays later, there's this huge guy sitting in the front row. I'm getting ready to preach, and he looks like this mafia gang member sitting in the front row. And I'm like, oh, he's here, right? <laughs> Uh, but then one of our deacons said, hey, did you meet my brother? He came and visited today. And he's like, I was like, was he like the big muscular guy in the front row? He's like, yeah, that was him. I'm like, phew. But anyway, so my, my point is Wish that he'd it, told you that before the sermon. Exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. Um, but again, there's going to be risk uh, with that. Yeah. We, we say multicultural ministry is messy, but it's a good mess. And that's a part of the risk. You know, it's, it's not clean and easy. It's, it's a struggle, but it's 100% totally worth it because of what you are seeing as a preview of heaven and you're seeing the gospel fleshed out on earth. Daka, anything you want oh, to add? I, just, I think I wanted to add, we know on Friday we have a Bible study, a national Bible study, and uh, I think you see that it's not just, you know, between maybe, you know, as a host culture, an American culture to international, 
you see mess within it. You know, we have Africans that don't know how to relate to Chinese. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we have the Indians who, you know, Europeans. And so Arabs and, you know, and the Persians. So there's a lot of, you know, mess just between the cultures. So how do you help? I think one of the things for us is how do you help those international believers to relate to each other? Good. And, That's you good. know, how can a, a girl from Congo reach out to a girl from Iran? Yeah. And the gospel. Who, who by think, the way, both yeah. have a lot in common. Yeah. They just need yeah, to I mean, identify those. Yeah, areas. there's a lot of differences. You know, there's some there's, there's things that are similar, but uh, you know, you yeah. see that there's a challenge. Good word. Uh, just a good word of testimony. As I, as I heard Icky talking about intentionality, I look at the, the boards and the artwork here in the sanctuary at Wilcrest, and it's very multicultural, very diverse. So the first time a person walks in this worship center, looks forward, uh, they see that. That's a strong statement of intentionality. Way to go. Because... Uh, it's amazing how many churches talk about multiculturalism, and we we're, we want to be diverse. But every Jesus in the preschool and children's area is white, middle class, tan, you know, cute. So, you know, where where is the Jesus that reflects the nations uh, in, in your area? Let's see. You have a question you want to ask these guys, and uh, see if we can uh, keep the conversation going. That's probably a signal they're tired, or that you answered everything. We have one. Yes, sir. Real out. Yeah, so what do y'all feel like is the importance of hiring just a diverse staff in light of the name of your church? Diverse. Yeah, so George Yancey has that book uh, that he wrote based on his research, and that's what he talks about. It's having a diverse leadership that reflects the people. So on our staff, very, very diverse. Our youth pastor is mom is African American, dad is a Nigerian immigrant, so he's got a Nigerian last name, but grew up in the African American community. So again, he's got a very multicultural uh, upbringing. Uh, our worship leader, Hispanic female. Um, when I got to the refuge, we were roughly half black, and when I mean black, like African American and half white. And now, being an Asian American, married to an African American woman, and having this diverse staff, we're about 40% people of African descent. So that's African, African American, Afro-Caribbean, 40% white, and then about 20% mix of Hispanic, Asian, and uh, even biracial folks as well. So, and again, our elder board, we have an elder who's formerly incarcerated, uh, deacon as well. So anyway, just who we're trying to reach is who we're reflecting both as leadership and staff. So I think that's very important. That's good. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a good idea. You know, I, I'm international, I was hired. Um, but I think, you know, what I, you know, I've seen in the, in the Bridges National, in, just nationally, you know, there's, you know, they've hired some people from, you know, China, Indonesia, you know. I think when your students see that you have diverse staff, they, they feel more welcome. Mm -hmm. um, um, in Houston, we have a guy from Salvador, some Chinese, you know, I'm, I'm diverse. So for them, it's like, oh, you know, it's just like, this is like us. <laughs> so I, I, I think it's a, it's a huge advantage. Good. I think it's a, a big advantage, um, and I say that being a, a white guy on staff at a multi-ethnic church, I'm actually the first white person they've hired in a while. I did tell them I'm not just a normal white person, I'm Cajun. <laughs> and we're different. Uh, we are our own actual people group recognized by the government. Nobody cares about it until crawfish season, but we are. But I would caution you with this. I see many multi-ethnic teams on the field. I see multi-ethnic churches here. Uh, I see multi-ethnic research projects. And there's this attitude of paternalism where I'm hiring you because you fit a certain visual profile that I need. However, I'm not going to let your cultural perspective shine through in whatever it is that we're doing. It's going to be, I'll just speak for my own culture, we're going to kind of whitewash it. But, but in, in a broader sense, we sort of western wash everything where 
you know, you get one of these uh, global theology books and it winds up sounding like any systematic theology written by any seminary here. Um, and there's a problem because I would say that the beautiful thing about multiculturalism is that I think that each culture has a particular lens. And I'm not saying truth is relative. I'm not saying there's a thousand interpretations of the Bible. I'm saying there, there are different things that, that I don't see because I didn't grow up that way. I didn't grow up in an honor-shame culture, so, I, so that doesn't pop out to me until I'm around uh, brothers and sisters who see those things in the cross and in the fall and in all these different places. And so I think we need to be careful not to put everything through this, this churn which kind of flattens the contours. I, mean, I think the contours are good. Yeah. I think uh, we can obviously agree to disagree on the intentionality of hiring people of color or of a nationality or an ethnicity. We, we uh, had to just stop even thinking that way because if you're thinking missionally, and let's say there are African-American folks in your community that are not in your church and you want to reach them for Christ, they're not going to church and they, you think they ought to come to your church, then it makes perfect sense that you want to build a bridge and make a connection. And representing or reflecting, as we would say, that particular part of our community is a strong statement and a very important thing to do. And people say, well, are you just hiring him because he's black? And you know what I said to that? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I called the guy on the phone and said, I'm looking for an African-American teaching pastor. Are you one? He said, well, as a matter of fact, I am. I said, good, let's talk, because I'm looking for an African-American teaching pastor to help me connect to a part of our community that we're clearly not connecting to because they're not in our church. So, you know, a lot of people kind of dance around it and get a little squeamish, and I had one guy say, that's reverse discrimination. And I said, go away, you know? I mean, I don't even know what that means. I mean, we're here to reach people for Christ, and... You know, we got certain kinds of personalities to reach students and certain kinds of personalities to reach various parts of our congregation. Why wouldn't we think about being intentional to reflect our community in order to reach our community? So I hope I didn't offend you right there. It's a great question, and it gets talked about all the time. Really good question. I want to offer that, too. So even at City Refuge, so even we weren't sitting there one day as an elder board saying, we need to get a formally incarcerated elder on, on session <laughs> on our board. Yeah. And even our staff, our, so our current elder board are three African-Americans, three white, two Asian. And we didn't sit there and say, we need a perfect ratio of three, three, and two. That's how it happened. And so there's an intention attitude, but also a trusting God and sovereign work yes, to bring absolutely works together. Well. Excellent point. Excellent point. Works if, together. I just, if I just add one more thing as okay. well. Um, I, I think a lot of our assumptions that if, if someone is not like us, they must be really diverse inherently. Mm -hmm. And that's not always true. And so, like, simply hiring someone because they fit that profile, uh, maybe there are there is somebody that fits that profile that is also very diverse, but you can be from another background and not care about anything else of anybody yeah. that's like you. Yeah, it gets back to, to the mission and the vision, and do it's we the have heart. the same heart? And, oh, by the way, you're uniquely qualified to do this aspect of our ministry that we are lacking in. So, good stuff. Uh, one more question. we got time. So to repeat the question for you guys in the back, uh, how much are you guys in your particular international multicultural immigrant ministries uh, coming across trafficking and the victims of, of human trafficking? And for his next trick. What? What? 
so, so I, don't, I don't specifically work with uh, sexual trafficking or anything like that. I do lead people on city tours around to a lot of the international places in Houston. And you will notice an increase of particular kinds of businesses um, in you know, lower socioeconomic areas and international areas in particular. And some of those businesses are uh, clubs and massage parlors and other kind of things. But yeah, in, ter in terms of my own experience, I, I really don't have any. Either guys? Uh, we work Free the Captives, and then uh, what's the name of that whole church initiative in Houston? Free the Captives. FCA, that's it. The other Fellowship of Christian Athletes and Free the Christian Athletes. Those are the two FCAs. Uh, we work with uh, FCA as well. So directly as a church, no. In terms of partnering with other ministries, uh, yes. Good. Yeah, we don't. Yeah, I do work primarily with international students, so I don't deal with a lot of that. Good. Uh, there are lots of great ministries and uh, lots of uh, ways to connect to ministry, too. Um, some of them are sort of under the radar for the protection of those they rescue. And we're connected to a ministry. I can't tell you how connected we are to a particular ministry that rescues uh, trafficking victims. And, and there are lots of opportunities in that area and great need. You're exactly right. Well, we've gone past our time. I hope you didn't mind that. Uh, but it's a great discussion. Would you help me thank our panelists? and appreciate your insight today. Great job really good. And I am supposed to remind you that our next gathering is a little later than normal. I think it's impacted by Easter, April 19th. So go ahead and get that on your calendars. We'll be at Grace. I don't know which Grace. There are lots, but does anybody else know which Grace that is? Piece of cake. Grace Press. Grace Press. Excellent. Does that mean you're hosting us? Excellent. Thank you for doing that. Well, uh, how about standing with me? Let me pray a blessing as we head out of here. Thanks again for uh, making the time today. I hope it's been beneficial. I sure appreciated Jeff's remarks and all the good things that happened today. And uh, thank you for what you're doing to reach the nations uh, right here in the greater Houston area. What an incredible opportunity we have, right? Right here in Houston uh, to really, really reach the nations for Christ. Father, we thank you for the privilege that is ours to have seen in these recent decades the whole world come to Houston. And Lord, help us not to hold up in our own little people groups with our own little mindsets and backgrounds and understandings of the world, but help us to, to get your heart for the nations that you have wonderfully brought to our doorsteps. Bless all of our churches and church plants and future plants and, and our own heart and mind. Help us to navigate the tensions. Help us to work through the challenges and to enjoy and love the mess of ministry in this context, and Lord, help us to make a huge impact on the world for all of eternity right here in Greater Houston. Bless every pastor, church leader, and everyone who's here as we go, continuing to serve you and want to honor you in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Have a great afternoon. God bless.